This is VOA News reporting by remote. I'm Michael Brown. There has been no let-up in hostilities in Ukraine despite a high-profile prisoner swap. AP correspondent Karen Chalmers reports. Fighting continued in Ukraine despite a recent prisoner swap hours earlier and the day after Russian President Vladimir Putin called up reserve troops to supplement his forces. Russian and Ukrainian forces exchanged missile and artillery fire that killed several people in the east of Ukraine. Neither side was ready to concede any ground, even though Moscow has seen military setbacks in recent days. Russian missile strikes in the southern city of Zaporizhia killed at least one person. Meanwhile, authorities in the separatist-controlled city of Donetsk said Ukrainian shelling killed several people after artillery hit a covered market and a passenger minibus. Speaking on Russian TV, a local Donetsk resident accused the Ukrainian nationalist movement of striking the area. These are Bandera supporters. Dear Vladimir Putin, squeeze them out of here from Donbass. I'm Karen Chamas. Pro-Moscow authorities in Ukraine's Russian-controlled regions are preparing to hold referendums starting Friday on becoming part of Russia, which then could allow Moscow to escalate the war in defense of the annexed territory. The votes are planned in Luhansk, Kherson, Zaporizhia, and Donetsk. Although Ukraine and its Western allies have called them sham referendums and have no plans to recognize the outcome, as legitimate. Hurricane Fiona, moving closer to Bermuda after causing several deaths and leaving many people without power in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. Fiona is expected to make its closest approach to Bermuda overnight into early Friday with significant impact from winds and storm surge, according to the National Hurricane Center. This is VOA News. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced Thursday that the United States has allocated more than $170 million in additional humanitarian assistance for ethnic Rohingyas living both inside and outside Myanmar. In a statement, Blinken said the latest assistance package includes more than $93 million administered through the State Department and more than $77 million through the U.S. Agency for International Development. He said the $138 million is for programs specifically for host communities in Bangladesh. For nearly 4 to 5 million Americans have rolled up their sleeves for Omicron-targeted boosters. AP correspondent Mike Gracia has the story. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said Thursday 4.4 million Americans have received the updated COVID-19 booster shot so far. The White House has its own count, saying by its estimate more than 5 million people have received the new booster. Either way, health experts say it's too early to predict whether the demand will match the 171 million doses of new boosters ordered by the federal government for the fall. The new boosters are designed to target the most common Omicron strain. There has been a temporary shortage of Moderna vaccine. The issue should be resolved soon as government regulators complete an inspection and batches of the vaccine are cleared for distribution. I'm Mike Rossio. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida said Thursday that Japan will abolish a series of COVID-19 booster restrictions in hopes of reviving its tourism industry. As of October 11th, Japan will allow individual visitors to enter the country, reinstate visa waivers, and end the cap on daily arrivals. Kishida announced the long-awaited policy shift at a news conference in New York. Japan has also removed mandatory pre-arrival PCR tests for fully vaccinated travelers in September, but kept the 50,000 cap on daily arrivals. The new guidelines will open doors 
to an unlimited number of tourists as long as they have been vaccinated three times or submit a negative COVID-19 test ahead of their trip, according to Kyoto News. Clashes between Iranian security forces and protesters have killed at least nine people since the violence erupted over the weekend, according to the Associated Press, based on statements from Iran state-run and semi-official media. The demonstrations in Iran began as an outpouring of anger over the death last week of a young woman held by the country's morality police for allegedly violating its strictly enforced dress code. As always, for details on more news, we invite you to join us at our website, voanews.com. I'm Michael Brown reporting by remote, VOA News. Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Butt in Washington. Today is Friday, September 23rd, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Zimbabwe's president again calls for the removal of Western sanctions on his country. The ongoing deleterious effects of the illegal sanctions continue to hamper and slow down our progress and the realization of sustainable and inclusive development. We'll have another viewpoint on the call this week for UN Security Council reform. Zimbabwe and Chinese investors agreed to build a $3 billion industrial park. The U.S. overtakes Uganda as the top consumer of Kenyan goods. Liberian President Weah cautioned prospective politicians against incitement of violence ahead of the country's 2023 elections. I wish to underscore my government's unwavering commitment to ensuring that the enabling environment continues to exist for the conduct of peaceful, free, fair, transparent, and inclusive elections. And a landmark lawsuit is filed against a Senegalese fish meal factory. The stories plus something O'Malley sports are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Zimbabwe President Emerson Mnagagwa has again called for the removal of what he calls illegal sanctions on his country. The U.S. imposed sanctions in 2001 under the Zimbabwe Democracy and Economic Recovery Act. The sanction follows Zimbabwe's controversial land reform program in 2000 and the subsequent government-sponsored violence on democratic practices and human rights abuses. Speaking Thursday to the 77th session of the U.N. General Assembly in New York, President Unagagwa touted his government's support for sustainable development, but he said the sanctions continue to slow down Zimbabwe's development. Mr. President, as my government continues to entrench democracy, good governance, and the rule of law, we are committed to vibrant, competitive, and peaceful political contestations. Notwithstanding our success, the ongoing deleterious effects of the illegal sanctions continue to hamper and slow down our progress and the realization of sustainable and inclusive development. Zimbabwe is a peace-loving country. We remain indebted to the Saudi region and African Union as well as other progressive members 
in the Committee of Nations for their unwavering support and calls for the removal of these unwarranted and unjustified sanctions on Zimbabwe. We once again call for their immediate and unconditional removal. My country welcomes the findings of the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the negative impact of the unilateral cohesive measures on the enjoyment of human rights who visit Zimbabwe in 2021. Mr. President, at the international level, Zimbabwe has adopted an engagement and re-engagement policy. The policy is underpinned by the principles of mutual understanding and respect, cooperation, partnership, and shared values with other members of the international community. We desire to be a friend to all and an enemy to none. The spread of terrorism and intensification of all the conflicts on the African continent and throughout the world have been a setback to our quest to silence the guns. In Southern Africa, we remain seized with insecurity and a terrorist insurgency in northern parts of Cabo Delgado in Mozambique and the conflicts in parts of the Great Lakes region. Emboldened by our Sadiq regional philosophy that an injury to one is an injury to all, we continue to pool our resources to fight terrorism and other threats to peace, security, and stability in our region. We appeal to the United Nations to render the requisite support to our efforts to restore peace in the affected areas. That was Zimbabwe President Emerson Nagagua speaking Thursday at the ongoing 77th United Nations General Assembly in New York. Liberian President George Weah says his government supports constitutional rule in West Africa as Liberia prepares for presidential and parliamentary elections in 2023. Weah told the 77th United Nations General Assembly on Thursday that democracy in Liberia was growing step by step. However, he cautioned prospective politicians to avoid incitement of violence and other behavior that he said could deprive Liberians of the peaceful space they need to freely choose their next leaders. President Weah's speech comes, as it appears, a propaganda campaign aimed at Liberian voters has broken out over the past few weeks. Weah says his government is committed to creating an enabling environment for a free, fair, transparent, and inclusive election. After many years of civil upheaval, Liberia is becoming a stronghold for peace, and a safe haven for democracy. This is because we have taken actions in the last few years to build and strengthen democratic institutions such as the press and the Liberian judiciary. We have put forward new legislation that empower the media while eradicating those that have tended to suppress free speech. I am proud to say that from the beginning of my administration to date, there is no political prisoner in Liberia. 
our regional conferences of the Mana River Union and the ECOWAS, which have been called to discuss efforts to restore democracy in a few troubled spots in our West African region. Liberia has constantly and consistently pleaded for a strict adherence to constitutional terms limits and for a return to democratic civilian rule in cases of military takeover. Liberia is expected to hold presidential and legislative elections in October 2023. The forthcoming election will be crucial to consolidating our democracy. In this regard, I wish to underscore my government's unwavering commitment to ensuring that the enabling environment continues to exist for the conduct of peaceful, free, fair, transparent, and inclusive elections. This is in keeping with my commitment to ensure that the democratic will of the Liberian people is respected at all times. In the run-up to the 2023 elections, it is incumbent upon all prospective candidates to avoid the incitement of violence and any other behavior that could deprive the Liberian people of the peaceful space that they need to freely exercise their franchise and freely express their political will in choosing their leaders. We must let the people decide, and then we must respect their decision. This is indeed the true essence of democracy. That was Liberian President George Weah speaking Thursday at the United Nations General Assembly. In his speech to the United Nations General Assembly earlier this week, U.S. President Joe Biden expressed support for expanding the Security Council by granting permanent seats to Latin America, the Caribbean, and Africa. Some say the Council's new members should not have veto powers. Is this fair? Viewers Carol Van Dam posed this question to Ken Opalo, assistant professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and author of the book Legislative Development in Africa, Politics, and Post-Colonial Legacies. No, because it would defeat the purpose of expanding the Security Council to begin with. I think the clamor for membership in the Council reflects a desire to get rid of this post-World War II settlement where in the UN some countries are more equal than others. And so having a two-tier permanent membership would defeat that purpose. If the Security Council is to be expanded, it should be expanded with full powers for all the new members. Do you think that Africa countries would be receptive to it even if they have that restraint on them? I don't think so. I think the maybe they would accept it as, as a first step, but the agitation has always been clear that African countries want a full seat at the table, not a half measure like you know membership without veto powers. I wanted to ask you a little bit about this idea of a Russian oil price cap. The U.S. and its European and Asian allies are talking about sanctions on Russia and energy prices as they figure out how to ramp up punishments on Moscow at UNGA. Finance ministers from the Group of Seven formally support the idea of a price cap on buying Russian oil and because it's aimed at cutting Russia's revenue from oil that is used to fund the war in Ukraine. 
Will African countries abide by a price cap, do you think? The simple answer is that African countries are likely to be divided on this question. Some will, some won't. Uh, so far, only South Africa has come out uh, being clear that they will not follow every step, the U.S. on every step uh, along this path. But, you know, presumably if Russia is offering African countries petroleum products at a cheaper price than what they're currently paying for, uh, they would take that price even if it violates uh, the price cap set by uh, the U.S. and its partners. Or they, they will buy uh, Russian oil that's been laundered through refineries in India and elsewhere, which may be cheaper than uh, what's the, uh, the going rate on the international market. And you think that India and other countries would actually do that? Yeah, I mean, so India and China are currently buying a lot of Russian oil. Uh, India in particular has ramped up its consumption of Russian oil. And so the practicalities of the sanctions will be will be difficult to implement, to put it mildly, right? Uh, it's, it's difficult for the U.S. to keep track of every drop of oil. And I think African countries, like other countries on the global stage, will want to get cheaper oil in part because the current crisis is really affecting their bottom line. Many oil importers and anything that lowers their import bill would be very much welcome. That was Ken Opalo, assistant professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and non-resident fellow at the Center for Global Development. He was speaking with my colleague, Carol Van Dam. To Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Barton in Washington. Today is Friday, September 23rd. And still to come on our program, Samson O'Malley's Sports. Zimbabwe has approved a proposal by Chinese investors to build a nearly $3 billion industrial park for processing metals used to make batteries. Zimbabwean authorities say the lithium, platinum, and nickel production is part of efforts to refloat the sinking economy. But critics note that Zimbabwe has announced several multi-billion dollar projects in recent years that failed to benefit locals. Columbus Mavunga reports from Hip, hip. There was a festive mood with music, food, and decorations at the Zimbabwe State House as Chinese investors last Friday signed a deal to build a $2.8 billion battery metals park. Zimbabwean authorities say the lithium, platinum, and nickel production will be used to make solar batteries. President Emerson Mnangagwa says the project, about an hour's drive northwest of Harare, will help turn around the decline of Zimbabwe's economy. industrial park will augment my government's trust on value addition and beneficiation of minerals, as well as bolster the crucial role that mineral value chains play in the national industrialization agenda. It is said to mark the inception of a lithium-ion battery value chain in Zimbabwe. It is said to place Zimbabwe amongst the world producers of lithium-ion batteries. Zimbabwe's government plans to provide the land and minerals for the park, while the two Chinese companies investing will bring in machinery and needed funds. Mnangagwa is aiming for a $12 billion mining industry in Zimbabwe by next year. Lino Mklanga is a director at Hong Kong Igu International Holdings, one of the Chinese investors. The project will revolutionize 
the mining and energy sectors of Zimbabwe, ensuring optimum value addition for all minerals extracted locally. Zimbabwe Excellence is endowed with most, if not all, of the minerals needed in this new clean energy drive. Kenyan Investments Holdings and Pacific Gold Investments are partnering with the government of Zimbabwe to set up this world-class energy industrial park. This multi-billion dollar project on completion will have an annual turnover exceeding US dollars 13 billion annually. But critics note Zimbabwe has announced several multi-billion dollar projects in recent years that fell apart, including by Russian investors for platinum and Chinese for diamonds. The projects that do go forward really benefit ordinary Zimbabweans, says opposition lawmaker and rights activist Daniel Molokelo. The mining investment model that we have, which favors countries such as China, is a big disadvantage for the poor people of Zimbabwe because the investment method is called extractive mining is to the advantage of the investor than of the local communities. So Zimbabwe is not benefiting, at least at a common citizen level, unless and until we come up with a mining model that favors the local communities, that allows for shareholding and profiting for local communities in all mining investments. Zimbabwe is home to valuable minerals such as gold, iron, diamonds, lithium, platinum, and chrome. But the World Bank says half of Zimbabweans live on less than a dollar a day. Farai Maguhu is the director of the Center for National Resource Governance, a group working to improve governance of Zimbabwe's natural resources. He says the Metals Park deal needs to be transparent and aimed at helping locals or else Zimbabwe will remain a resource-cursed country. If government is only looking at creating jobs, then that's very minimal expectation that we can have out of this project. What is we see with the Chinese in Zimbabwe is that everything they are getting, they are taking it to China. That's why the influx of Chinese investors in Zimbabwe is not contributing anything even to liquidity in our financial sector, simply because the Zimbabweans are not involved in these projects. The battery metals park is expected to be up to 50 square kilometers in size when completed in about three years. Columbus Mafungam for viewing news, Harare, Zimbabwe. New figures from Kenya's National Bureau of Statistics show the United States has overtaken Uganda as the largest buyer of Kenyan goods. Victoria Amuga reports from Nairobi. The numbers from Kenya's National Bureau of Statistics show that between January and June 2022, Kenya's exports to the United States totaled 38.8 billion Kenya shillings, an equivalent of about 321 million U.S. dollars. Uganda's imports from Kenya dipped to about 300 million U.S. dollars. According to the report, the jump was caused mainly by increased sales of Kenyan clothing apparel to the U.S., Economists such as Ken Gichinga say the figures are a sign of Kenya's deepening bilateral relationships with the U.S., including increased direct flights to New York. Americans uh, have a bigger purchasing power for products in Kenya. So you'll find American investors will find it a very good time to be able to purchase assets and purchase things in Kenya because 
the markets are right now in their favor. Uganda has been the biggest buyer of Kenyan exports for over a decade, but a Kenyan publication, Business Daily, reports that Uganda's imports from Kenya have dropped as investors set up Ugandan factories to manufacture goods previously imported from Kenya, such as edible oils and cement. Wangari Muikia, an economist in Kenya, says the country's strong relations with the U.S., backed by the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act, AGOA, will likely continue to thrive as the new government of President William Ruto is keen on more partnerships with America. Victoria Amunga for VOA News, Nairobi. A Senegalese fisherman's collective is suing the owners of a fish meal factory which they say has polluted their village and destroyed their livelihoods. The lawsuit is the first of its kind and could set a precedent for other communities fighting against fish factories. Annika Hamishlaw reports from Tears, Senegal. Some 40 people assembled outside the courthouse in Chess, Senegal on Thursday, chanting protest slogans and holding banners that called for the closure of the factory in the town of Kair. The event marked what they had hoped would be the first day of legal proceedings between the Tuba Protein Marine Fish Meal Factory and the Fisherman's Taksawu Kair Collective. However, the case was postponed to October 6th. LAC is a member of the Fisherman's Collective. He says that for anyone who comes to Kair, all they'd have to do is breathe to understand the difficulties they're facing. People have fallen ill, seriously ill. Life is too hard now, he says. But we know we won't be alone in this fight. The factory has also significantly decreased the value of their land, he added. The Tuba Protein Marine Factory, formerly known as Barna Senegal, is one of at least a half dozen fish meal factories that operate in the West African country. Fishmeal is dried ground-up fish that is used as fertilizer or animal feed. According to the environmental group Greenpeace, the Tuba factory has dumped increasing and illegal levels of heavy metals into Kyer's land and water. Critics say fishmeal factories have contributed to rising food insecurity throughout the region. They say the factories take fish that would otherwise be consumed locally and export them as fishmeal to European and Asian markets, where it's used to feed farm animals. But Talagai, the communications officer for the Tuba factory, says the factory was established at a time when there was a surplus of fish being left on the beach. He also refuted claims that the factory had polluted Kyer's water. He says the director and many of the workers live next to the factory and no one has been diagnosed with illnesses due to its impacts. Annika Hammerschlag for VOA News, Chess, Senegal. Time now for Daybreak Africa Sports, and here is Samson O'Malley in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Friday morning to you, Samson. Good Friday morning to you too, James. We begin the sports with the African Nations Cup Chan Algeria 2022 final draw. The draw scheduled for all just the Algerian capital will be conducted on Saturday, the 1st of October 2022. This will be a major milestone in the countdown to Nessie's Chan to be hosted in Algeria between the 13th of January 2023 and the 4th of February 2023. The 2022 Under-20 Regional Kosafa Youth Championship for Southern Africa will be staged in Eswatini from October the 6th 
to the 16th, 2022. The finalists for the competition will qualify for the CAF Under-20 Afghan to be hosted by Egypt between February the 16th and March the 12th, 2023. And the competition will be a qualifier for the FIFA Under-20 World Cup scheduled for Indonesia later in 2023. Namibia is one of the teams that will be at next month's Kosafa Youth Championship. James Breeze is the coach of Namibia's Young Warriors. He speaks on the preparations of the team ahead of the tournament. As a Namibian, you know, we always want to go further. We want to go one step further. Last time we ended second. We want to try and do one better. Um, and we believe it's possible. Fitness level at the moment, not we are not there yet. But I think we are getting better. The 2022 World Cup is barely two months away. And African teams who have qualified for the Qatar World Cup are using this week's international window to play international friendlies. In one of such friendlies, Tunisia's Carthage Eagles defeated Comoros Island 1-0 in the match played in Paris. The only goal of the match was scored by Taha Yassin Kenisi in the 59th minute. The Carthage Eagles will play second friendly against Brazil on September 27th at Parc de Prince. Ghana's Black Stars will face off with Brazil later today as part of their preparations for the World Cup. Ghana Football Association Head of Communication is Henry Asante Tuum. It is a high-profile friendly match. Um, Brazil have won the World Cup on five occasions. They boast of top, top quality players um, across the globe. Um, they have um, a very good team as well, uh, led by Tite, the head coach. So um, it doesn't come easy to, to get to play against um, a side like Brazil. In basketball news, FIBA Africa has announced the clubs across Africa who will participate in the 2022 Road to Baal, an elite 16 qualifying tournament for season three of the Basketball African League next year. This year's Road to Baal will take place across four African cities. It will get underway on October 11 and it will be concluded on October the 30th. 20 teams will be divided into four groups of five teams each, which will be split into East and West divisions. And that's it for Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a nice weekend. And that's it for this Friday, September 23rd edition of Daybreak Africa. I am 